the U.S. Supreme Court ended its term last week with some big decisions on affirmative action, student loans, and gay rights. This episode is about the power and prestige of the highest court in our country and about the justices that debate, deliberate, and ultimately dissent and deliver the court's decisions. Um, the justices disagree because they have different political values, not because somehow they're doing the science of legal interpretation yeah. wrong. Legal interpretations in art much more than a science. They, they were not really expecting philosopher kings because they're not really expecting the Supreme Court to be making decisions on almost every significant social and political issue. We've kind of imbibed a myth, which I think is not based in reality, that the Supreme Court is much more important than it really is. The Supreme, oh, Court, wow. tends, Supreme Court tends to reflect society. The Supreme Court didn't create the civil rights movement. The Supreme Court did not create gay marriage. It only reflected a changing movement in society in favor of gay marriage. So the, the Supreme Court was pretty regularly defied by states in the 1820s, 1830s. One of them was that the court seemed to have been intimidated and they started up upholding Roosevelt's agenda. So they upheld the Social Security Act and they upheld the National Labor Relations Act and they upheld another state's minimum wage law, which seemed indistinguishable from the one they had struck down a year earlier. And a lot of Roosevelt's appointments portrayed him as an authoritarian wannabe. And when he starts talking about Hacking the courts, he sounds a little bit like, you know, Hitler, who actually endorsed the idea of court packing. We would be outraged because you're not supposed to own a Supreme Court justice. As Alexander Hamilton famously said in Federalist Paper 78, the court doesn't have the power of the sword like the executive. It doesn't command armies. It doesn't have the power of the purse. It doesn't have the ability to raise money and spend it like Congress. All it has is the power of its judgment. So it has to be respected. And people to be respected means people who disagree with your decisions have to be willing to say, OK, I'll go along with that, even though I disagree. Did you know that the U.S. Congress can take away the jurisdiction of the U.S. Supreme Court on any pending case and for any reason whatsoever, including the reason that Congress doesn't like the potential outcome of a case pending before the high court. I know, this doesn't make sense. It sounds crazy. It seems to undermine our constitutional principle of separation of powers and also of checks and balances. But as my guest will explain in this episode, in the 19th century, the Supreme Court unanimously decided exactly this, that it is perfectly constitutional for Congress to limit its jurisdiction, even on pending cases. Hey there, News Peelers. Today is July 7th, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history 
to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. Can universities consider race in their admissions process? No, they cannot, because the U.S. Supreme Court said so on Thursday, June 29th. Can President Biden erase more than $400 billion of America's student debt? No, he cannot, because the U.S. Supreme Court said so on Friday, June 30th. Can a web designer refuse to provide services for same-sex marriages based on her First Amendment rights? Yes, she can, because the U.S. Supreme Court said so on Friday, June 30th. But where does the Supreme Court get its power? And where does it get its prestige? And are the Supreme Court's power and prestige eroding now that everything is so polarized? Now that serious allegations of ethical misconduct have been raised about Justice Clarence Thomas and, to much lesser extent, regarding Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Neil Gorsuch. To better understand this history, the history of the U.S. Supreme Court's prestige and power, and to better understand its politics, as in, is the high court inherently a political institution, and whether or not it bends to America's popular sentiments. I spoke with Dr. Michael Klarman, who digs deep into centuries past, going back to the court's early years to answer these important questions in the historical context with vivid examples and familiar stories that I bet you thought you knew, but now may be surprised. I know I was surprised many times by what I learned during this conversation, particularly when Dr. Klarman wisely advises us Americans that if we want to bring about changes, broad changes, and if we have agendas for America, we should focus less on the Supreme Court and litigation to bring about those changes. Rather, we should invest our resources on lobbying Congress and social movements like social media, rallies, and good old-fashioned knocking on doors, instead of starting out with litigation, thinking and hoping that the Supreme Court would bring about our desired changes and outcomes. Dr. Klarman is the Charles Warren Professor of Legal History at Harvard Law School. He has won numerous awards for his teaching and scholarship, which are primarily in the areas of constitutional law and constitutional history. In 2009, he was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2020, he authored the foreword to the Harvard Law Review's annual Supreme Court issue, which is titled The Degradation of American Democracy and the Court. He's the author of many books. I'll identify one here for you. The Framers' Coup, The Making of the United States Constitution, a book that was a finalist for the George Washington Book Prize. To learn more about Dr. Klarman, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Klarman and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Klarman, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. When 
Our founders wrote Article 3 of the Constitution, which is about our judicial system. What do they have in mind for justices of the U.S. Supreme Court? And, and, and perhaps I should sort of add more substance to that question. What I'm wondering is what historical precedents did they draw from? You know, are we going back to Plato? Are we going back to English common law? So mainly the reason to have a Supreme Court and a federal court system more generally was to protect the interests of the federal government, which the framers thought based on experience, the state courts might not adequately defend. So there were, uh-huh. no, fed, there were no federal courts of general jurisdiction under the Articles of Confederation. There were state courts and there were limited purpose federal courts dealing with just the issues of admiralty and prize adjudication. So if a ship was captured, a British ship during the Revolutionary War and it was brought into an American court, there would be uh, federal prize courts to adjudicate who was entitled to the proceeds. But the framers had experienced uh, a problem without federal courts. So let me give you an example and this will respond Uh, to why they perceived a need for federal judges. So if the United States negotiates a treaty, like the treaty that ended the Revolutionary War, the the Peace of Paris, the Paris uh, Treaty of Paris, there are portions of the treaty that might not be uh, popular in some states. The people who negotiated the treaty are representing the interests of the entire country. And of course, they're trying to make a deal. um, And there may be interests in some states that conflict with what the treaty provides. And if, for example, the treaty says that states are not supposed to interfere with the repayment of pre-war debts, it may turn out that in some states like Virginia, that's a very unpopular treaty provision. So imagine that a British creditor is trying to get repaid from an American debtor, say a planter in Virginia, and they're trying to sue to make sure that the debt is paid the only court they can sue in is a Virginia state court. A state court. Oh, that's interesting. So state judges are dependent on state legislatures. They're not necessarily guaranteed any particular tenure in office, and their appointment probably depends on the state legislature. So those state judges are going to represent the interests of the state legislature rather than the interests of the federal government. Yeah. So one, one reason to have a federal court system is to ensure that you have some independent judges who are not dependent for their tenure or their salary on a state legislature. And um, you might expect that those federal judges will do a better job of protecting the interests of the federal government. They also thought this was very important with regard to revenue legislation. So if the federal government passed a law to raise taxes, they didn't think the federal government should be dependent on state courts for the interpretation of that federal tax law. They thought it ought to be interpreted by federal courts. So that's why they created a federal court system, and they thought they needed a Supreme Court that could oversee the highest courts of the states as well as lower federal courts, if there were going to be lower federal courts. And uh, that way, the Supreme Court at the apex of the system could correct and incorrect from their perspective interpretation of a federal law or federal treaty. So that's the main reason why they wanted a Supreme Court. It turns out that the Supreme Court does a lot more besides that, yeah. uh, but that was the main that was the main reason. And then I guess in addition, 
if you're imagining that states might sue each other or that citizens of one state might sue a citizen of another state, there's no reason to think that a state court is going to be neutral if it's arbitrating the interests of its own citizens against those of another state. So a federal court was seen in a sense as a more neutral arbiter if you were gonna have conflicts between states like Virginia and Maryland or lawsuits involving the citizens of one state against the citizen of another state. So that was another reason to have a federal court system. Now, we have this court, the Supreme Court and the apex of our judicial system, both federal and as, as, as well as the state systems. Was there any vision for what kind of people should be the justices of the Supreme Court? Are we like talking about philosopher kings of Plato or what do they think? Um, the framers are not contemplating anything like today's Supreme Court, which has broadened its constitutional jurisdiction so far that almost every important issue of national, social or political debate ends up getting adjudicated by the Supreme Court under the Constitution. Yeah, so, yeah. Abortion rights, affirmative action, the death penalty, campaign finance laws, uh, almost anything that we have arguments about gets up to the Supreme Court. They were not really envisioning that, but they certainly thought that on important questions of treaty interpretation, on questions involving land disputes, if the state of Maryland and the state of Virginia disagree precisely over where the boundary is between the states, they assumed the Supreme Court would adjudicate that. Uh, they believe that the justices ought to be uh, experienced, well-respected lawyers, probably more affluent members of the community, uh, better educated than most members of the community back at a time that fewer than 1% of citizens went to college. Yeah. Um, they, they were not really expecting philosopher kings because they're not really expecting the Supreme Court to be making decisions on almost every significant social and political issue. But they were expecting people who would protect the interests of the federal government. They were ex expecting people who would be fairly conservative in their economic views, kind of part of the elite, people who would not support uh, inflating the currency through issuing paper money, people who uh, they were not expecting the justices to be re very receptive to debtor relief legislation, which had been a big political issue in the 1780s, many states trying to save farmers from bankruptcy by passing debtor relief laws. Uh, the framers wanted to shut that down and they wrote a provision of the constitution to explicitly shut it down. And then they empowered federal courts to enforce that provision. So they were um, expecting a kind of elite institution that represented the views of well-educated, uh, mostly pretty prosperous uh, landowners. Uh, very well educated, but definitely part of the elite, not the ordinary uh, man off the street. In our history, do you think the court, and by the court, I mean the Supreme Court, has been able to establish itself as apolitical? Um, I, I think a lot of people today think of the court as a political institution. Yeah. I think the court... I think the court's always been a political institution because if I which I mean simply that the values of the justices have to play a role in their constitutional interpretation, uh, legal interpretation, constitutional interpretation. It's not a science. 
It's not like somebody gives you an equation to solve and there's a right answer. We're usually dealing with issues that are deeply controversial, where people have very strong and opposing preferences. And we're usually, usually dealing with interpreting language that can be fairly open-ended and ambiguous. And we're dealing with a discipline where people disagree about fundamental starting assumptions about the yeah. best way to, in, to interpret the document. So just to take one example, on the one hand, you have uh, originalists who think that the constitution ought to be interpreted according to the public meaning that most people at the time would have understood from the language used. Whereas other people think the constitution ought to be adaptable to changing events, changing social mores, changing values and circumstances. Because the constitution's open-ended and ambiguous, because people feel very strongly about the issues being adjudicated, and because we have fundamental disagreements about the right way to interpret a constitution, I think it's inevitable that the justices own political ideology will influence their interpretation. And I think this has been true throughout American history. The first great constitutional ruling in Marbury versus Madison. Yeah, uh, yeah. Leads to a decision from Chief Justice Marshall that defends the idea of judicial review, meaning courts striking down statutes. But you can make a totally respectable argument that the constitution actually does not authorize judicial review and reasonable people could embrace that competing conclusion. Um, a couple of decades later, the court's deciding about whether Congress has the constitutional power to charter a bank. Chief Justice Marshall writes a unanimous opinion for the court defending a very broad view of congressional power, but Jeffersonian and Jacksonian opponents of the court uh, believe in a very different interpretation. They don't think Congress has very broad uh, Im implied powers. They would limit those powers to those that are strictly necessary for implementing the enumerated objectives of Congress. And then they start disagreeing about slavery issues in the famous Dred Scott case. Yeah. They disagree about issues of economic regulation from the 1890s through the 1930s. And then they start disagreeing with themselves about issues of the rights of criminal defendants, the free speech rights of radicals and communists. Um, and they've always disagreed about stuff. So recently they disagree about gay marriage. They're going to disagree this term about race-based affirmative action. Um, the justices disagree because they have different political values, not because somehow they're doing the science of legal interpretation yeah. wrong. Legal interpretation is an art much more than a science. Let's go back to Marbury versus Madison. And the reason I key on that decision is for two reasons. One is it's a case that both you and I going back to high school before we got into law, um, everyone has pretty much heard Marbury versus Madison. Um, so, and the second reason is that Chief Justice Marshall was actually, if I'm correct on this, the Secretary of State of President Adams, who was rival to Jefferson. And so he makes this decision, this sort of Landmark decision. Do you think this decision in and of itself was political? It's both political in the sense that Chief Justice Marshall is making controversial choices yeah. when he's interpreting the Constitution. And it's also political in the sense that it arises from a highly political dispute that was in some ways one of the biggest issues 
that arose after the election and the election was deeply contested and it wasn't obvious whether President Jefferson would actually get his majority in the Electoral College. So the background looks like this. Um, when Adams um, was in the lame duck period after he had lost the election, but before Jefferson was inaugurated, which back then lasted almost four months, the, Jeff, uh, the Adams administration in conjunction with a Congress that was friendly to Adams's political party, the Federalists, they passed a couple of laws to basically pack the federal judiciary because they had lost control of Congress as of inauguration day and they were yeah. losing the presidency. So they decided to entrench themselves in the one part of the federal government where they had pretty much unanimous control. Every federal judge in the country was a supporter of the Federalist political party, which was the party of John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. So they packed the courts, they created a whole bunch of new federal judges. And in the District of Columbia, they passed a statute creating 42 new justices of the peace, and they appointed Federalists to those positions. Then the, the Adams administration leaves uh, office on March 4th, Jefferson's inaugurated, and some of the Justice of the Peace Commissions had not been delivered, which was the, through the fault of the Secretary of State, who happened to be uh, George, John Marshall, who was yeah. performing both functions for a brief period of time. He was both Secretary of State and Chief Justice. So one of these uh, justices of the peace who had not got, gotten his commission brings a lawsuit in the Supreme Court, and that's Marbury, who is demanding that the new Secretary of State, James Madison, deliver the commission, which has been signed and sealed, but it hasn't been delivered. And so this is a lawsuit filed in the Supreme Court. And the Jeffersonians are so outraged by this that they start talking about repealing the law, creating the new judges. And they basically don't allow the Supreme Court to sit for the entire 1802 calendar year. Oh, wow. They're afraid, they're afraid the Supreme Court is uh, going to rule in, in favor of Marbury. And they're worried that the Supreme Court is going to strike down this repeal law they passed that tried to remove these newly created federal judges. So that's the lawsuit. It's Marbury suing Secretary of State Madison, demanding the commission. Uh, John Marshall should have recused himself since he was the Secretary of State whose negligence had prevented the delivery of the commission. But this has huge political implications because most people believe that if John Adam, John Marshall dares to order the Jefferson administration to deliver a commission, that Jefferson will just defy him. And that leads Marshall to write a very unorthodox opinion where he goes through a great um, misdirection in order to declare his view that Marbury is entitled to his commission, that Jefferson is behaving the Jefferson administration is behaving lawlessly by not delivering the commission. But at the end of the day, what Marshall says is the statute that arguably gives the court jurisdiction to hear this case, and the court can't do anything without jurisdiction, that that statute violates Article Three of the Constitution, and that the court has the power, the so-called judicial review power, to strike it down. This leads Jefferson to seethe because Marshall has basically declared him a vile lawbreaker, but he has nothing to defy because at the end of the day, Marshall said, I don't have jurisdiction to order you to do anything. So you've behaved unlawfully and morally, but I can't order you to deliver the commission. So it's political from beginning to end. Marshall yeah. is strategizing 
about how to resolve this case in a way that makes the president look bad, but doesn't give the president the opportunity to defy the court, which will make the court look impotent, which it really is at this point in American history. So it's a thoroughly political decision, not only in its substantive holding that courts have the power to strike down legislation, but also the entirety of the case is, is political. You know, that's not how it is taught in our high schools. You know, you look at it as if these philosophers sitting, coming down with some really important legal um, decisions, which are important, but there's politics all over this. And to add to that, uh, Jefferson and Justice Marshall were first cousins and they hated each other. So there's that layer. Um, you, you you mentioned something really interesting. You said uh, they basically the Jefferson administration basically didn't allow the Supreme Court to sit for its uh, period of 1802, which makes me think of this question. You sort of alluded to this as well. The court doesn't have its own enforcement power, correct? Okay. Yeah. You're sh- you're, you're sh- yeah. So if, if, if so, then theoretically, a U.S. president could simply flout the court's decision or kind of like fudge its implementation, right? Uh, you know, the court has a marshal. So, you know, if somebody is out there in the street uh, doing things that are sufficiently disrespectful or outrageous toward the court, the court could send out the federal marshal and grab somebody and bring them before the court to hold them in contempt. But the court doesn't have an army. And yeah. if, there's resist- if there's resistance to a court decision, the court is dependent on the executive branch of the federal government to enforce its decision. So the, maybe the most classic example would be after Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, there was a lawsuit in Arkansas demanding that the Little Rock schools be desegregated. And the federal lower federal court said yes. After Brown versus Board of Education, it's been decided that racial segregation mandated by the state is unconstitutional. So the court issues an injunction against the Uh, school board and demanding the integration of the schools. The governor, for political reasons, says, well, I'm not going to let the schools in in (laughs) Little Rock, I'm not going to let Central High School be desegregated. And uh, the Supreme Court ends up uh, dependent on President Eisenhower. Is President Eisenhower going to send in federal troops and nationalize the the National Guard, the the state militia, in order to ensure that the so-called Little Rock Nine can attend a desegregated high school. And if President Eisenhower had said, no, I'm not gonna do that, there's nothing the Supreme Court could do to make him do it. And there are some instances in history. So for example, early in the Civil War, President Lincoln was ordered by Chief Justice Taney not to authorize the suspension of habeas corpus. The uh, president right after the Civil War started wanted the military to be able to grab prospective secessionists in the state of Maryland and incarcerate them. And Chief Justice Taney, sitting as a circuit judge in Baltimore, said only Congress can authorize the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. And the president can't do that. And Lincoln basically responded saying, I disagree with your interpretation, but I'm also not going to I'm not going to let the union fall apart, even if I am violating one minor constitutional provision, and there's absolutely nothing that Tawney could do to force Lincoln to observe his ruling. Oh, wow. That's wild. And that's in time of war. Do we have any other examples in 
other times of peace? Well, we certainly have examples of states defying the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, President Roosevelt was, we know this from- F FDR, uh, right? Yeah, sorry. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt during the Great Depression was preparing to defy a court decision that he thought would be adverse, but the court ended up ruling five to four in his favor. So he didn't actually have to go through with the plan to defy it. Uh, this was an issue involving uh, Roosevelt during the depression, trying to take the United States off the gold standard. Oh yeah. He, ha he had to authorize what's will be called the abrogation of gold clauses in public and private contracts. These are provisions that guarantee that debts be repaid in gold or in dollars that are valued in, in stable gold prices. And Roosevelt didn't want to do that. It would have frustrated his effort to take the country off the gold standard. So he abrogated the, the gold clause in public and private contracts. And Roosevelt was planning on defying the court if the court struck that down. But the justices might have understood that. And so they ruled in his favor instead. Uh, there are lots of examples of states defying the Supreme Court. Most of the southern states were defying the Brown decision yeah. after the Supreme Court invalidated school prayer in the 1960s. Many states, especially southern states, continued with school prayer. Many state legislatures have defied the Supreme Court on abortion uh, until the court more recently overturned Roe versus Wade. In the 19th century, this happened all the time. Oh, wow. Federal government just didn't have the administrative apparatus to really enforce its decisions. And there was there was only a minuscule army in the United States. So it's not like, you know, President Jackson could easily have sent in the army to South yeah. Carolina when South Carolina was threatening to nullify a federal law. So the, the Supreme Court was pretty regularly defied by states in the 1820s, 1830s. Oh, wow. Once That's federal, interesting. Once the federal government grows much bigger, which is really a function of the late 19th and into the 20th century, then the federal government has more weapons to fight back with, as, for example, President Eisenhower sending in the military to enforce school desegregation. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the impact of public opinion on the U.S. Supreme Court and its decisions. We'll be right back. As we talk about the U.S. Supreme Court in this episode, I invite you to listen to my conversation with Dr. Gidon Chahad of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem about Israel's Supreme Court and Mr. Netanyahu's attempts to reform his country's judiciary. Dr. Chahad is a senior fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute, and he draws important distinctions between Israel's democracy and ours. He talks about how integral Israel's Supreme Court is to that country's democracy, because it's the only check on Israel's government. The link to this fascinating conversation in Season 3, Episode 14 is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Klarman about the U.S. Supreme Court. Dr. Klarman, in its long history, is there a trend to suggest that in big national cases, you mentioned some of them, the court uh, more or less has followed the public mood, the public opinion? I think in a, in a broad sense, the Supreme Court 
is part of contemporary culture and it's part of the same historical moment that you and I live in. So it'd be a little surprising if the court ever radically departed from public opinion. And I think we see this in most cases, you know, in 1896, when most white Americans were supportive of white supremacy, the Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson said state mandated segregation of railroad passengers was perfectly yeah. fine. But after World War II, as people's views about race were changing with the role of black soldiers in the Second World War and the idea that the war had been against Nazi fascism, leading Americans to reconsider their racial views and black soldiers coming back to the United States and trying to register to vote, which they often weren't allowed to do in the Deep South, and seeing some disconnect between a war ostensibly fought for democracy and the fact that they couldn't vote in Mississippi, the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 also reflected changing racial mores and struck down racial segregation. Another good example of that would be Obergefell versus Hodges. The Supreme Court would not have dreamed of ruling that same-sex marriage was a constitutional right until after a significant percentage of the country had radically transformed their views on questions involving same-sex relations. So by the time the court decided in Obergefell in 2015 that gay marriage was constitutionally protected, 55 to 60 percent of Americans had already shifted their views in favor of same-sex marriage. The court would not have dreamed of ruling that way 20 or 30 years earlier when the percentage of Americans supporting same-sex marriage might have been as low as 20 or 25 percent. Same thing's wow. true on, on, on most big issues. The Supreme Court would never have dreamed of protecting women under the Equal Protection Clause until after second wave feminism in the 1960s. The court would not have dreamed of protecting a constitutional right to abortion before there was a dramatic, almost revolutionary shift in opinion toward abortion in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So in that sense, yes, I think it would be surprising if the court ever got dramatically out of touch with public opinion. That doesn't mean that the court can occasionally frustrate what the majority wants, especially in, in small ways, especially on issues that are not as salient as some of the main issues in society. Can you think of any case in which the court has dramatically sort of stood aside from the public mood, the public opinion? Um, there are a couple examples that come to mind. So uh, the Supreme Court struck down voluntary non-denominational prayer in public schools in a case called Engel versus Vitale in 1962. Opinion polls have always showed that 70 or 80 percent of Americans disagreed with that decision and think that if people want to have their children participate in a voluntary non-denominational prayer, that should be permitted. Uh, the Supreme uh, What year was that? That's 1962, and it's yes. probably true. I'm pretty sure it's true even today that a majority yeah. of Americans disagree with that decision. Wow. Another good example would be the flag burning decision in 1989. The Supreme Court said there was a First Amendment right to engage in expressive speech, which included burning the American flag in protest. Uh, that was immediately uh, excoriated by Congress and Congress passed a new federal law trying to protect flags from desecration and the court struck that down the next year. So uh, opinion polls have always shown that, you know, 60, 70, 75% of Americans thought that the flag is kind of an exception 
and that even though most expression is protected, even if it's offensive to many people, you could take the flag and treat it as off limits to desecration. So that's an example of the court frustrating public opinion. There are there are some examples, but notice that's just a purely symbolic issue. Yeah, it's yeah. not like abort. It's not like abortion or gay marriage or uh, racial segregation in schools. Those are huge issues that affect people's everyday lives. Burning flags is only an issue because the Supreme Court said you had a constitutional right to do it. Yeah, had been for that, nobody was really paying attention to the issue. Uh, in one of our prior communications before the podcast, you mentioned Citizens United. Is that does that fall into this category of where the court sort of went off on on its own, sort of isolated? It does, according to opinion polls. That's a good question. Um, when Citizens United is decided in 2010, and it says corporations have the same free speech rights as individuals. And that now, if I may interrupt you, that's a big decision. That's different than the flag burning in the prayer. That's a humongous decision. It affects it's all of our... Go ahead, please. It is. Agreed. It's a humongous decision. It has a really enormous effect on politics. And I think most of us think it has a very deleterious effect yeah, on politics. Yeah. You know, $15, million, $15 billion was spent in the 2022 <laughs> off-year elections. There's no other country in the world that sees their politics corrupted by money in the way that our country does. There were opinion polls in 2010 showing that 80% of Democrats and 80% of Republican voters both disagreed with the decision. And wow. President, Obama, President Obama tried twice, once in a joint address to Congress, to rally public opinion in, in a backlash against the court decision. But it's very difficult to do. Um, it's not an issue. It's a very important issue, but it's not a personal issue like abortion or who your children go to school with or whether you can marry someone of the same sex. And there's another problem, which is, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily matter what voters want if politicians who are the ones who benefit from the money, from the financial contributions, <laughs> they're the ones making the rules. And they might decide that on this issue, they'd actually like to continue taking the money, even if their voters are not thrilled with that. So I call that a kind of entrenchment issue where the people who are in office might have an incentive to preserve the status quo, even if a lot of their voters across party lines would like to change the status quo. Because the Supreme Court has said the First Amendment protects corporations and individual persons from spending money, you know, you're entitled, if you're Michael Bloomberg, to spend $10 billion getting yourself elected. The only way to change that is by constitutional amendment. And it's almost impossible to amend the Constitution when interest groups that are pretty powerful prefer the status quo to any constitutional change. So the really only the only way to change these decisions would be to change the composition of the Supreme Court, which was about to happen in 2016, uh, when President Obama suddenly had an appointment to make in his last year in office and Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, sorry, no luck, we're not confirming anyone in the last year of your administration. If Merrick Garland had replaced Justice Scalia, there's a decent chance that the court would have overturned Citizens United, which was a five to four decision. And Justice Scalia was a necessary member of that majority. Um, it's a terrible situation we're in. There is no other country in the world that has anything else like this, where basically interest groups are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to influence policy on guns and pharmaceuticals. Um, 
it, it, and politicians are responsive to that. If they need to spend $15 billion in off-year elections, then they can hardly turn down those contributions. And those contributions also have a radicalizing effect because it turns out the people who spend money on politics tend not to come from the middle of the political spectrum. They tend to come from the ends of the political spectrum. So which means it further polarizes our politics. Uh, exactly. Um, I want to I want to ask you uh, a historic question about another uh, period uh, of the U.S. Supreme Court in which it seemed, and I un underline the word "seemed," uh, subject to your answer, that it was sort of isolated. It was not following the public opinion, and that's during uh, FDR's presidency, especially during the New Deal in the 1930s before World War uh, II, where we had the court packing episode was was the court following the public mood when it was striking down new deal law or was it was it opposing it it's a great decision and i think the answer has to be a little bit nuanced so fdr was winning landslides he won yeah. a landslide in 1932 the democrats won unprecedented gains in the off-year elections in 1934 Roosevelt won another landslide in 1936, winning 46 of the 48 states' electoral votes. Wow. Now, Roosevelt was trying out any number of experimental policies, desperately trying to do something to dig the country out of the Great Depression. Um, even though Roosevelt was incredibly popular, it doesn't necessarily mean that particular policies were popular. So yeah. I'll, give you an, I'll give you an example of one law that the court struck down that might not have been an unpopular decision. And then I'll give you another example of a law the court struck down that might have been one of the most unpopular decisions. Oh, wow. In okay. History. So um, take the Agricultural Adjustment Act. About 25% of the economy is farming in the mid-1930s. And the strategy behind the Agricultural Adjustment Act is we are going to pay... Um, we're going to, well, there are a couple of different strategies depending on which law we're talking about. But on this first law, what they're going to do is they're going to tax agricultural processors. So somebody who processes uh, cotton or sugar, we're going to tax them. And then we're going to use that tax revenue to pay farmers not to grow more than a certain amount. We're going to impose quotas. You're a wheat farmer. We're going to pay you not to grow more than a certain amount of wheat. We're going to pay you, if you're a cotton farmer, not to grow more than a certain amount of cotton. The strategy, the economic strategy was, you know, we're overproducing, which is yeah. driving prices down through the floor. And farmers are actually selling stuff for less than it costs for them to, to plant and market it. So wow. this, this was the strategy. But of course, what you're doing is you're artificially bolstering the market price of goods that consumers might be buying, like milk and eggs and bread. And so this is not very popular among consumers who are going to pay higher prices than the market would command. So the court struck down the Agricultural Adjustment Act, essentially on the grounds that Congress does not have the power under its authority to regulate interstate commerce to do something like regulate agricultural production. The court said that had always been something the states could regulate, but not the federal government. But when the court struck the law down, there was an opinion poll showing that 60% of Americans didn't like that particular law for this reason, that it raised consumer prices. 
So even though Roosevelt was very popular, it's not clear that the court was going to suffer some big backlash for striking down an unpopular law. However, and now I'll get to the other decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The court struck down a dozen of Roosevelt's initiatives in an 18-month period. And then in June of 1936, they struck down a state law regulating minimum wages for female employees. Yeah. Now, uh, that was not based on the idea that obviously only the states can regulate things, not the federal government, because this was a state regulation. Yeah. It was based on the idea that liberty of contract protects the ability of employers, adult employers, sorry, adult employees and employers to negotiate wages and the government shouldn't be in the business of telling employers how much to pay. That was incredibly unpopular. Even the Republican presidential candidate in 1936, Alf Landon, would not support it. Uh, newspaper editors throughout the country, a disproportionate number of whom were Republican, wouldn't support it. Uh, Alf Landon supported a constitutional amendment to overturn the decision. So that case, which is called Topaldo, was one of the most unpopular decisions in American history. And it probably is partly what inspired Roosevelt after his landslide election to threaten the, to pack the court. The other point that's, that's worth making is, you know, the, the, the court, I said the court had struck down a dozen New Deal measures in 18 months. What many people were worried about was what the court might do after the election. So Roosevelt, as part of what's known as his second New Deal in 1935, is passing additional statutes like the National Labor Relations Act, which is the law that promotes unionization of employment, and the Social Security Act, which, of course, is enormously popular, providing uh, old age pensions mm -hmm. um, and uh, and also uh, unemployment compensation, which was a big deal during the Depression. People were very worried that the same court that had struck down the Agricultural Adjustment Act and a whole other raft of New Deal laws might, after the election, strike down the National yeah. Labor Relations Act and the Social Security Act. So Roosevelt, in February 1937, said, I'm not going to wait to find out. I'm going to expand. I'm going to try to get Congress to pass a law expanding the court. And for every justice over 70 who doesn't voluntarily leave, I get to appoint a new additional justice, which would have meant in 1937, six more justices, which would have given him a pretty secure majority to do whatever he wanted. And then there was a huge fight over the next six months about whether Congress was passed this law. And I think there was a lot of drama. I think people weren't very certain what would happen. And then there were a couple developments that kind of turned legislators who were kind of on the, on the fence, turned them against the measure. And one of them was that the court seemed to have been intimidated and they started up upholding Roosevelt's agenda. So they upheld the Social Security Act and they upheld the National Labor Relations Act and they upheld another state's minimum wage law, which seemed indistinguishable from the one they had struck down a year earlier. And then the other thing that happened is one of the conservative justices announced that he was going to retire at the end of the 1936-37 term. So now Roosevelt was going to get an appointment. So not only is he starting to win by five to four votes, but he's going to get an additional appointment. And a lot of Americans, you know, never really liked the idea of packing the court. Yeah, this, yeah. Is the, this is the era of totalitarian regimes. This is the era of fascism. In Mussolini, Italy. Hitler, Japan. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, Stalin in, oh, in of course, the yeah. Union. 
And the top authoritarians, you know, in the 1930s, just like today, one of the first things they do is they attack an independent judiciary. And a lot of Roosevelt's appointments portrayed him as an authoritarian wannabe. And when he starts talking about hacking the courts, he sounds a little bit like, you know, Hitler, who actually endorsed the idea of court packing oh. or the American version of an authoritarian with Huey Long, the governor of Louisiana, who a lot of people thought was going to challenge Roosevelt from the left in, in 1936. And Huey Long had packed the state Supreme Court in Louisiana. So a lot of Americans who supported Roosevelt generally and didn't love what the Supreme Court was doing still might back off at the suggestion that you should pack the Supreme Court. And that's kind of what happened. Yeah. We'll be back after a short break to talk about something that you talked about. The court was intimidated. So we're going to talk about the court's prestige. Hey there, news peelers. We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features, including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on U.S. politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries, like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests, like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Dr. Klarman, you talked about several cases in which the court was aware of the public mood, the public opinion being against it. So what I want to know is this, does the court worry about its prestige? I think we have a lot of evidence, some of which is very direct and some of which is powerful, even though it's based on inference that the justices care a great deal about the institutional stature of the Supreme Court and that this is a factor they very much take into account in their decisions. So I think it's almost obvious that this was true about Chief Justice Marshall in Marbury versus Madison. Chief yeah. Justice understood the court's a weak institution. It has no independent ability to enforce its decisions. As Alexander Hamilton famously said in Federalist Paper 78, the court doesn't have the power of the sword like the executive. It doesn't command armies. It doesn't have the power of the purse. It doesn't have the ability to raise money and spend it like Congress. All it has is the power of its judgment. So it has to be respected. And people to be respected means people who disagree with your decisions have to be willing to say, OK, I'll go along with that, even though I disagree. So Chief Justice Marshall understood that if he issued an order that President Jefferson didn't like, President Jefferson might very well defy it. And therefore Marshall decided to take this very indirect route of saying that Jefferson was defying the law, but Marshall couldn't order him to comply because the statute giving John Marshall in the court jurisdiction was unconstitutional. I think you see the court doing this during reconstruction. So in the 1860s, Congress was in the process of- So this is after the Civil War. After the Civil War, when you yeah. had an accidental president, Abraham Lincoln's assassinated, Andrew Johnson, who was yeah. not even a Republican, he was a Democrat who had been put on a unity ticket during the war. He was very much opposed to the policy of the Republicans in Congress. And the Supreme Court looked like it might be siding with 
uh, President Johnson and, and a more traditional view of Congress's powers because Congress was exercising extraordinary new powers during Reconstruction. It was trying to establish true interracial democracy in the South and there was tremendous resistance to that. So it looked like the Supreme Court might be about to strike down some of Congress's measures for reconstructing the South, which were quite radical in terms of traditional constitutional doctrine. And Congress decided, well, the court might strike down our reconstruction law. We're going to take away the court's jurisdiction. And the justices, oh, wow. had, to, the justices had to decide while Congress was thinking about passing this law, taking away the court's jurisdiction, whether the justices should go ahead and decide the case that might have struck down Reconstruction. And they decide at the end of the day, well, we're not going to race against Congress. That would be unseemly. So if Congress passes a law repealing our jurisdiction, uh, we'll wait and see. And then the court had to decide after Congress passed the law over President Johnson's veto, Congress, the court had to decide whether it was constitutional. Can you take away the Supreme Court's jurisdiction in a pending case pretty clearly because you don't like the decision that the court might render. And the court unanimously said, yeah, you can take away the court's jurisdiction for any reason. It doesn't matter if it's an obvious effort to influence an outcome, which you thought the court might be about to render. So that'd be another example. And then there are just tons more examples. Um, you know, when Chief Justice Roberts was the fifth vote in 2012 to uphold the Affordable Care Act, yeah. he came up with a very bizarre kind of compromise decision where he says he's one of five justices to say, well, Congress can't force people to buy health care insurance under the Commerce Clause, but I'm going to uphold it as a tax. You're taxing people who decline to buy health insurance, and that's okay to do it under the taxing power, but then I'm going to strike down this effort to coerce the states into expanding Medicaid. It's a very convoluted, clearly a political compromise. And it's pretty obvious that Chief Justice Roberts was making a concession. At conference, he had voted to strike down the individual mandate entirely, but he got cold feet because this is during a presidential election. This is yeah. in the summer of 2012. And he thought it maybe would be going too far to strike down the principal domestic accomplishment of somebody who's running for a second term as president. So he basically got cold feet and he ended up upholding the statute. There are lots of other examples. You know, the court in the 1960s kind of trims its sales in criminal procedure because it's generating too much resistance at a time of rising crime rates. The court in the late 1950s cuts back on its protection of the rights of communists because Congress had gotten very upset with some of the court's decisions in 1957. The justices have always been aware of political constraints and the need to reflect those and to make concessions to those when necessary. To, to preserve their own prestige, right? Um, you know, you could see this in a couple of different ways. So when the chief justice decided to uphold the Affordable Care Act, I think that's partly about preserving the institutional stature of the court, but they're not indifferent to their own historical reputation. And you could imagine that none of the justices want to be like Chief Justice Taney, who had written the Dred Scott opinion, which yeah, ended yeah. up destroying his reputation because in the eight years after his decision, which basically said Congress can't interfere with slavery in federal territories, 
Within the next eight years, we'd fought a civil war, which yeah. became a war about slavery, and we ended up abolishing slavery. So he was very much on the wrong side of history. Justices care about that. When, when Anthony Kennedy votes with the four liberals to declare a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, I don't think anybody doubts that he's thinking of himself in terms of his long-term reputation. He's near the end of a 30-plus year career on the Supreme Court. He understands the trend line of history. He understands that gay marriage will continue to gain in support and that one day Obergefell will look very much like Brown versus Board of Education with the court being on the right side of history. So they think about that too. So we've talked about the Supreme Court, whether or not it's a political entity or whether or not it thinks of politics. We've talked about its prestige and power. So are we witnessing the lowest point of the court's prestige and influence now? Uh, the court sacrificed a fair amount of prestige uh, before and during the Civil War. So the fact that the court had been dominated by Southerners and by capital D Democrats made the court not look very good among Republicans and non-Southerners. And of course, those people won the Civil War. And you know, Congress in the 1860s was considering whether to finance a bust of the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Taney, and they refused to appropriate the money on the grounds that Chief Justice Taney was a villain, not a hero, oh, wow. because of his decision in Dred Scott. Yeah. So the of court course. lost a fair amount of its prestige because politics had changed, the political context had changed, and the court was perceived of being partisan in a way that the dominant Republicans were no longer willing to countenance. What's happened in the last 10 or 20 years is that the court is increasingly perceived as being some combination of a threat to democracy by uh, gutting the Voting Rights Act, by upholding partisan gerrymandering, by unleashing money in politics, by undermining public sector labor unions, which are the backbone of the Democratic Party. So part of the problem is many people who care about democracy see the court not as protecting democracy, but as being an additional threat. On the other hand, or in addition, uh, most Democrats, capital D Democrats, have come to regard the court as basically an arm of the Republican Party. Yeah. So, you know, the court started in this direction with the Bush versus Gore decision in 2001, which basically handed the presidency to Republican candidate George W. Bush with a legal decision that was to most people laughable in its reasoning. And since then, you can just tick off the boxes on almost every issue that has partisan implications, the court with a handful of exceptions. So Justice Kennedy would vote with the liberals to uphold race-based affirmative action, and he voted with the liberals to, to strike a blow for gay marriage. But on almost everything else you can imagine, uh, the court's been deciding in a conservative direction. So not only Bush versus Gore, the court strikes down all sorts of campaign finance reform. The court imposes an agenda that's straight out of the Chamber of Commerce's uh, dream list, uh, you know, striking down punitive damages against corporations, saying corporations have constitutional rights, making it very difficult to file class action litigation, cutting back on antitrust regulation, the court since 2008 has been expansively interpreting the Second Amendment to strike down gun control. The court's about to strike down race-based affirmative action. The court upheld President Trump's travel ban. 
the court's been gutting environmental legislation under administrative doctrines that are essentially made up in the last decade or two. So if you're a, a Democrat, you don't see a lot in the Supreme Court to suggest yeah. that it's not simply an arm of the Republican Party. So in the same way that the Republican Party doesn't garner very much support and in in approval ratings among Democratic voters, neither is the Supreme Court. So that's what you've seen recently is Democratic voters' opinion of the court has, has cratered, while Republican support for the court has actually gone up. Uh, but that's a very dangerous situation because the country is now trending Democratic based on the fact that Democrats have now won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections, which has never happened before in American history. So you've got a country that is trending left of center, not dramatically left, but somewhat left of center politically. And you've got what most analysts would call the most conservative Supreme Court since World War II. And obviously, people on the left of the spectrum are not going to respect an institution that is not respecting its own precedent and seems to be responding not to the wishes of a majority of the electorate, but rather to the wishes of the most extreme wing of what is the minority political party. So take Dobbs just quickly, for example. I mean, Dobbs says states are free to regulate abortion, which is not necessarily a, a radical position. But when you look at the laws being passed by Republican legislatures, even in moderate states like Florida, they're passing the most extreme abortion restrictions you can imagine, laws that are not supported by a majority in any state in the country. So the Republican Party in Texas or Arkansas or Missouri or Florida, when they legislate on abortion, they're passing these six-week bans and these life begins at conception bans. In no state does anywhere close to a majority of people support that. Uh, that's why it's producing such a backlash in favor yeah. of Democrats in the 2022 midterm elections. Now, the Supreme Court did not decree that. The Supreme Court said you can pass whatever you want. But because those state legislatures are so dominated by because of gerrymandering, because of partisan primaries, because of money in politics, they're so dominated by extremists that now looks like what the Supreme Court has produced. Right. Essentially condoned. Ban. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they have condoned it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's you know, that's that's a disaster for the court because. You know, there are lots of issues where Americans are kind of in the middle on abortion. It's not like all Americans support abortion on demand, abortion for any yeah. reason, abortion at any point in the pregnancy. But it is the case that a vast majority of Americans do not believe that you simply criminalize abortion at conception without exceptions for rape or incest or you know, that ten year old in Ohio who was raped yeah, and yeah, had to yeah. go to Indiana go to Indiana to get an abortion. What percentage of voters in Ohio do you think agree that a 10-year-old who was raped should have to leave the state to get an abortion? I'd be surprised if it's 10%. It's certainly not 20%. Yet the Supreme Court in Dobbs has enabled that. Yeah. Justices, they didn't say that's what abortion policy should be, but they enabled it. They enabled it. You're right. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Klarman as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast.
Dr. Klarman, do you have any comments you wish to share about the court's current ethical controversies? Well, I want to say a couple things about Justice Thomas specifically, although I do think there's some troubling allegations uh, involving um, also the the Chief Justice and his wife and refusal yeah. uh, to report some of the income um, uh I, I think there's some there's some appearances of impropriety there, and then the same thing with um, Justice Gorsuch and the sale of property to somebody who has business before the court. But Justice Thomas is the main concern. So there are two different issues here. Uh, Justice Thomas's spouse, uh, who is certainly not responsible for her behavior, but she was one of the principal agitators for overturning the results of the 2020 election. based on conspiracy theories and just straight out factual inaccuracies, call them lies, about whether the election had been stolen. So she's sending constant text traffic to Mark Meadows, the president's chief of staff. Now, she's entitled to do that. And I don't think Justice Thomas is responsible for what his spouse does. I think it would be sexist to say that whatever she does is is attributed to to her spouse. Uh, but there was a case in the Supreme Court involving whether the archives, National Archives, should turn over these texts from uh, Mark Meadows and others. And those texts would have shown that his spouse was engaging in behavior that might verge on criminal behavior, um, you know, inciting overthrow of the government. Oh, wow. And Justice, Justice Thomas did not recuse himself. And I do not understand how that can be defended. Wait, but that was his wife was involved. I mean, he needed to recuse himself, right? And he didn't recuse himself. So the court voted eight to one. Justice Thomas dissented without explanation on the on the effort to stop the National Archives from turning over those text messages. So that just seems to me indefensible. The other allegation is about all this money that Thomas's very wealthy benefactor, Harlan Crow, has been spending on jet flights, yacht cruises, buying the home of Justice Thomas's mother and providing private school tuition for a young relative who the Thomases raised as a son. Uh, we're talking more than a half million dollars. Uh, contributed to somebody who is ostensibly a friend of this billionaire businessman. But in 1969, Abe Fortas was impeached uh, in in the summer of 1968. The summer and fall, he was impeached, but not convicted. And then he was, um, sorry, he was denied, I, I misspoke, he was denied promotion to the chief justiceship because of some allegations of financial impropriety that some of his wealthy friends had set up a seminar at Georgetown for him to teach that wouldn't involve a lot of work, but would give him $10,000 a year as a way to compensate him for all the lost income because he was a wealthy partner in a Washington DC law firm and he had to give up some of his lifestyle when he became a chief justice on the Supreme Court. Then in the spring of 1969, the Nixon administration engineered his removal from the court. Again, the allegation was simply that he was being paid a stipend by a wealthy guy who had gotten himself into legal trouble. There were no allegations that Fortas had done anything inappropriate in terms of pulling any strings to help this guy who was going to end up uh, going to jail. 
there were no allegations that there was any quid pro quo, but simply the fact that a justice on the Supreme Court was seen as being on someone's payroll was so obviously inappropriate. Now, Justice Thomas is getting a half million dollars or more in benefits from a billionaire libertarian uh, businessman who invests in all sorts of foundations and nonprofits who have business before the court. And even if they didn't have business before the court, you know, imagine that Joe Biden just had a very wealthy to imagine George Soros was giving Joe Biden $10 million every year he was in the White House with no <laughs> allegations of a quid pro quo, no demonstration that this was anything other than a friendship. We would be outraged because you're not supposed to own a Supreme Court justice. And yeah. people are always people. We assume people are influenced by money. If justices have a financial interest in a case, they're required to recuse himself. And here's some guy who only became a friend after Thomas was on the Supreme Court, making his life more pleasant by giving him fancy vacations and paying for private school tuition. So is the, the is the 1969 case being used as a precedent to a couple of pe a couple of people who know about what happened to Abe Fortas, somebody who wrote a book about uh wrote a book that included a chapter on this. They've, they've written op-ed pieces in the New York Times and the Washington Post. We are so polarized that the Republican Party, not a single member will have any problem with Justice Thomas because they're not willing to lose his vote on the Supreme Court yeah. in the same way that they will not kick George Santos out of Congress in the same way that they all lined up be behind Herschel Walker notwithstanding the allegations of spousal abuse and all sorts of other improprieties. Yeah. There is right now, politics is the only thing that matters. Partisanship is so extreme, or at least this is true on the right. We don't know whether it's true on the left because we don't have a case as egregious where Democrats, you know, the Democrats forced, um, forced Al Franken out of office. Because yeah, I of remember that. Which were, you know, not the most, not the worst allegations in the world. Nothing compared to what they weren't good, but there were worse allegations than that. Uh, you're right. Um, wow. So this is a huge problem, right? It and is a huge problem. Yeah. The Republicans' line is that Democrats are just trying to force him off the court by, you know, sl sliming his reputation. But the fact of the matter is, he slimed his own reputation. And given that the court has so low credibility among people on the left of the political spectrum to begin with. This is just giving us a field day. And it's just obviously inappropriate. These are not close cases. Right? Yeah. Refusing to recuse yourself from a case that might involve criminal liability of your spouse is an outrage. And being in the pay of a wealthy donor without any evidence of quid pro quo exchanges, but simply this guy becoming your sugar daddy is just obviously inappropriate. And the justices refuse to police themselves. So, you know, Congress needs to do something about this. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about the U.S. Supreme Court after everything we've talked about, what would it be? Um, so I'm going to fudge a little bit and I'll give you a couple points. Uh, okay. One, the Supreme Court is an inevitably political institution. Two, uh, the Supreme Court has become, in the last 10 or 20 years, not only a political institution, but a partisan institution, mostly rubber stamping the policies of a political party that is no longer the majority party in the country, that is dominated by an extreme wing, 
And wow. this is going to become untenable because as the country demographically and for other reasons becomes more diverse, more progressive in its views about institutions like police forces, more concerned about economic inequality, you're gonna have a court representing a brand of politics that no longer is what most Americans want. And that's gonna to lead to more and more conflict and more and more willingness to consider novel ways of trying to force the court to accept the new political direction of the country. And then the last thing I'll simply say is if you have things that you want to accomplish in the United States, you want a civil rights movement to establish racial equality, you want a gay rights movement to produce gay marriage, you want a feminist movement in order to produce genuine gender equality, if you want to do something about climate change, if you want to do something about political uh, economic inequality, we should focus less on the Supreme Court than traditionally we've done. We've kind of imbibed a myth, which I think is not based in reality, that the Supreme Court is much more important than it really is. The Supreme, oh, Court, wow. tends, Supreme Court tends to reflect society. The Supreme Court didn't create the civil rights movement. The Supreme Court did not create gay marriage. It only reflected a changing movement in society in favor of gay marriage. So if you assume resources are limited and you want to invest in something like climate change, or you want to invest in producing gender, uh, transgender equality, do something in response to what the Republican legislatures are doing, attacking trans people. I don't think that litigation is the be all and end all. I think you need to invest in a social movement. You need to try to influence public opinion. You need to get out and try to influence people you know, what the gay rights movement did is they went into a state like Vermont and they spent two years introducing themselves, knocking on doors, we're your neighbors, we're your friends, we're your children. And then they brought a lawsuit trying to get gay marriage. It's a mistake to think that you start with the litigation and expect courts to rescue a social reform movement. Rather, you need to build up the movement and then maybe you bring a lawsuit. So I think those are those are important lessons. And those three kind of do, do tie together to some extent. They do. That was a very good advice and also profound. It really shifts the way you think about uh, the importance of America's uh, judiciary. Um, Dr. Klarman, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, 
We don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. Thank you.